The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I don't know how you're coming in this morning. Many of you are coming in very, very heavy. Not only as you think about the, the cares of this world that you carry with you, but the burdens, the, the grief upon grief. As we think about the, the things that are in the news, that are in our face, as Pastor Darren prayed about. We have the killing of Dante Wright. We have the trial of Derek Chauvin. We have the mass shooting in Indianapolis. All of those things, so heart-wrenching. There's a collective heartbrokenness that you feel over those things. But that, that's just what's in the news. There's, there's hidden killing happening in, in, in every Planned Parenthood place of abortion. There's looking beyond Minneapolis and even our world. One of our pastors this week told me about how the Burmese military are, are taking kids from orphanages in Myanmar and using them to, to find landmines. This is a broken world in which we live. And it's not just the, the burdens that we carry and the grief upon grief, but it is the brokenness that we all feel, that we all see in various ways. And the question before us is always, when we come to a moment like this, where do we look? We look within, and we see sin. We see a numbness sometimes. We see not, not hope there. We look outside of ourselves. We don't see hope there. We see brokenness everywhere. We must look up. And in that place where we find our God is in the heavens, we find that these painful situations, we need to not just feel the ache of all creation. We need to not just hear the groaning of all creation. These pains are not just supposed to be heard and felt, but interpreted. The Bible says that these are not dying pains. These are birthing pains. There is a new world coming. The creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And Jesus alone is bringing that. Jesus alone says to us, in this world, you'll have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. It is our only hope today. As we gather together, we say again, hope has a name. As we look outside of ourselves and, and look up, we find that our Savior is faithful. We've had enough of the taste of earth and its brokenness. As we sang, when you move, we have a taste of heaven here. That's what we need. And so let's pray together. Father, we know a taste of heaven is good. And we know heaven is good because you are there. And you are good. You are unchangeably good. And how much we need you. 
this morning. Need you to speak, need you to hold, need you to comfort. Thank you that you are the God of all comfort, the Father of mercy. Thank you that as we come to you for mercy, it's not like a a, a rich, miserly person who doesn't want to get rid of his money. You are a God overflowing in mercy, not miserly at all, but the God who gives to all life and breath and everything else. So we come needy, we come broken, we come heavy, needing to lean on the everlasting arms. Oh God, speak, hold, move. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning with a question. A question that feels heavy. In some ways, heavier than all of the other obvious evidences of brokenness before us. One in particular that feels heavy to me is this question. Do you believe that the America in which we live today is more welcoming of Christian convictions than generations ago or less welcome? Don't have to look very far to see that Christian convictions are are less welcome in our day than ever before in our country. And you can test it. In the past, what I'm thinking of is generations before us, the church always held the moral high ground in terms of people believed that what the church is doing, at least in Christian morality, is good for society. That nobody was going to make the argument that that drunkenness, that widespread sexual immorality, that things like that are somehow good for society, even if you didn't want to live according to the Christian moral code, there was at least the moral high ground that this is good. But today, widespread, many people believe that the church is bad for society, that the kind of things that the church is preaching in terms of what Jesus says, what Jesus commands, what Jesus teaches, goes right against the grain of what this world wants to hear in terms of what Jesus says. They, they want to call that intolerant. They, they want to say that, who, who are you to say anyone else is wrong about same-sex marriage, about trans? gender. There is a sense in which many people believe that what the church is saying is actually harmful for society because Christians have the audacity to bow before Jesus and to humbly accept what he says rather than the the changing secular morality that's all around us. That leads to the, the question that has me most burdened this morning. We at Bethlehem are are passionate about finding our supreme joy in Jesus and, therefore, also passionate about the joy of the next generation. One generation commending your works to another, finding their supreme joy in Jesus. And the question that I have is as we look ahead and forecast over the next 20 years, uh, 
how are we going to raise up the next generation to face the next America? How are we going to raise Christians in an environment where it looks like our country is headed more and more into the situation like what we see in the book of Acts? And the good news is that I think the answer to our question is found right in today's passage. I want to read it, and then I want to walk through it. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. As we walk through the passage, I think we're going to see the answer to our question, not only how do we live in our society today, but how do we prepare the next generation to live? The early church shows us we see first in verse 13, we see the boldness of the accused. And then ironically, verse 14, we see the silence of the accusers. The boldness of the accused and then the silence of the accusers. But then the next movement in verses 15 to 18, you have the charge from these earthly authorities of silence, of no longer speaking in the name of Jesus. But then you see the response of Peter and John. We must obey. We can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. And then we'll look at the conclusion in verses 21 to 22. So that's where we're going. Number one, look at the boldness of the accused there in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. So after Peter's defense before the Sanhedrin, the first thing that's in the face of the Sanhedrin is they notice the boldness of Peter and John. I wonder if anyone had spoken to them that way before. What they see is that there is an astonishing, stunning, evident, obvious eagerness to speak and not hold back 
on the part of Peter and John, as if they were not in awe of this earthly authority. That was astonishing. But was, what was even more astonishing is they couldn't explain it. There was no natural explanation. They, they looked and they saw that there were no advanced degrees in public speaking here, There was no professional training, unlike the Sanhedrin, many of which were professionally trained, highly educated. They saw something here that they could not explain in natural terms because Peter and John were uneducated, were common people. There was nothing about their pedigree, nothing about their education or their training or their profession that could explain what they were seeing. So they were absolutely astonished. Now, the the thing that you need to realize here right away is that for Christians, it's the same. Like, it's not wrong to have advanced professional degrees. It's not wrong to have a title or to have training or things like that. It's wrong to trust in those things. It's wrong to think that because you have them that somehow you can trust in your preparation or your public speaking or anything else about you. What is standing out about these disciples is that they're not hoping in anything that they have accomplished, anything that they have achieved themselves. What they realize The one thing that stands out about these disciples is that they're speaking this way because they've been with Jesus. The only thing that we as Christians really dig down deep into when we're sharing Jesus is not that because I have this degree or this training or I've taken this seminar that somehow it's going to come across in power. No, it it comes across with power and authenticity when you speak of Jesus because you've been with Jesus. As if Peter and John are taking the Sanhedrin and introducing them once again to the Jesus that they tried. And what happens in this moment is that it leads to just absolute silence. Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What a reversal here. Remember before when Jesus stood before them, he was silent and they were bringing all of the accusations. This time... Peter and John are there. They're bringing all the defense and the Sanhedrin has nothing to say. And this itself is fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. Luke chapter 21, Jesus said in verses 12 to 15, he promised these disciples that when they came before prisons, when they came before synagogues, when they came before rulers, they're not to meditate what they're going to say ahead of time because Jesus says, I'm going to give you a mouth and wisdom so that this will happen. None of your adversaries will be able to withstand or oppose. Same word, same exact word as Acts 4. This is fulfillment. 
The reason that Peter and John have such boldness, such wisdom, such power, is that Jesus is giving them a mouth. That Jesus is alive and reigning and empowering his people. The people that had been with Jesus are now speaking of Jesus, and Jesus is still with them. It's not that just they were with Jesus. It's that Jesus is still with them. Isn't that our hope? It's not that we've stored up enough that somehow we can now call it all back to mind ourselves because of our superior recall system. It's that those who've been with Jesus, Jesus is still with them. And he is not giving up on them. With them always giving them here a mouth and wisdom. So they can't explain two supernatural things. They can't explain away the miracle because he's standing right there beside them. And they can't explain the boldness. They can't explain the power. And the answer to both is Jesus. Jesus is the one that healed this man. Jesus is the one that's giving them this boldness and power and mouth and wisdom. But rather than embrace it, rather than acknowledge it, rather than repent, they seek to control. They seek to manage. Look at verses 15 to 18. They bring a charge. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying... What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. They want to. If there was a reason to, they would. Cannot. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Look at the extent of this charge. Call them, charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. All forms of verbal communication, speaking or teaching, at all in the name of Jesus, now forbidden. Isn't it interesting to get a view of Christianity from its opponents? The opponents are treating Christianity like it's some airborne disease, right? We don't want it to spread any further. And what we've discovered is that it spreads as people speak it. So to keep it from spreading, we've got to keep people from speaking it. And it's exactly what Jesus said in his commissioning to these disciples. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. As you speak, the gospel will spread. But these opponents have realized the same thing. The only way we're going to keep this to spread no further is to get them to speak no more. Now, are the disciples going to go for that? A quarantine Christianity right now, this is so pivotal, because a quarantine Christianity is no Christianity at all. It's not going to spread at all. Look at their response. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. 
For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. See what's happening? Why are they not in awe of earthly authority? Because they are in awe of ultimate authority. They bring these people who think they're the judge into the divine courtroom and they say, remember, God is judge and you're going to have to make this judgment whether you think we should listen to you or to God. As for us, we know what we're going to do and it's not just we have to obey God. They say more than that. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. Notice what they're saying. You guys can't deny the miracle that's right in front of you. You can't deny what you have seen and what you have heard. And we're in the same place. We can't deny what we have seen and heard. We've seen, yes, a lame man that can walk. We've also seen lepers cleanse. We've seen the blind have their eyes open. We've seen little girls come back from the dead. We've seen Lazarus raised. We've seen Jesus walk on water. We've seen him still the storm. We've seen him dead and raised again. He came to us with many convincing proofs that he's still alive. We saw him ascend on high. We see him continuing to work. We were with him. He's still with us. We can't help but speak of that. We can't deny it at all. And you, he says, you have to decide if you're going to listen to yourself or to God. But we know what we're going to do. We can't help but speak. Isn't that so helpful to see? It's not just what you say, how you say it. We just can't help it. There's nothing that you can do. We would rather die than disobey. We would rather have you punish us than not proclaim him. We can't help it. What do you do with a church like that, that would rather die than disobey? that says, no, this isn't just some cerebral choice for us. This is everything to us, and you're not going to shut us up. Conclusion comes then in verse 21 to 22. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Such an important principle. Verbal threats precede physical punishment. This was happening here. They found no way to punish them. They were looking, looking for a way, wanting to punish them for their defiant, direct disobedience. But they couldn't. Why? because of the people. What they saw was that the people were praising God for what Peter and John had done, and it's not going to go off very well if they're going to punish them for what they did. Here they are praising God. Here the leaders are punishing them. Not going to go well. But in the same way in our day, don't we recognize this? If the society as a whole is joining the verbal threats, then physical persecution is not far behind. People want to stay in power who are in power. 
They want to do what they want to do as long as they can get away with it and stay in power. And so these people in power understand enough to say, if we're not doing what the people want, we got problems. It's different if you're in a society that has verbal threats long enough against Christians, against the name of Christ, and they're not opposed, but people join in, you're not far from physical persecution. Now, what we have to see here, then, as we apply it, is that what these disciples are all about that we need is that it's not just as Christians that that we want to speak or that we are going to speak. It's that we can't help but speak. Like, I don't know where you're at on the whole mask controversy during a time of global pandemic. Are we or are we not willing to wear masks? People debate that. What is not debatable for Christians is we may wear a mask, we are not going to wear a muzzle, ever. You cannot get us to stop speaking about the name of Jesus. it's, It's a costly charge, but it's not complicated. We must speak. We cannot help but speak of the name of Jesus. And can we just say there's a lot to lose? I'm not being flippant, even as I think of the next 20 years and look at some of our kids. I'm not being flippant. You can very quickly lose popularity can very quickly have people turn to you with mockery, slander, gossip, just plain exclude you from things. It's not just popularity, but some can lose their livelihood. In our day, how many cases are before courts right now in which some photographer some baker, some video producer are being persecuted for refusing to celebrate same-sex marriage. Latest in the news, Emily Carpenter, wedding photographer in New York. New York law says you have to. You have to celebrate same-sex marriage. She loves to tell stories through photography, and the thing she loves to celebrate most is marriage. So they're saying you've got to celebrate this as marriage, and she's saying no, and they're saying $100,000 fine, lose your business license, you're in jail. That's what she's facing. And that's not just New York. We're seeing this everywhere. Right now, 2019, the eighth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals temporarily barred Minnesota from being able to act on the law that says telescope media has to produce same-sex wedding videos. Temporarily, they're being barred from enforcing that Minnesota law. For how long? We don't know. And what's happening is that there is a sophisticated silencing at work to shame Christians. 
If it can't be legal, they're not going to necessarily try to get you to deny the truth of Christianity, just its relevance, just its right to speak in public at all, much like the Sanhedrin. It's okay to speak the name of Jesus as long as you do it in the privacy of your own home or maybe in church. We'll see what kind of restrictions are in the pulpit that are coming, but they're saying, as long as you're willing to have a leash and a muzzle and only talk about Jesus in private, we're fine. But don't at all bring him into the public. What will Christians say? Here's my application first. It's time for a reality check. It's time for a reality check. Sometimes parents dream of having kids that really make it in the world. And we need to realize going forward, we are, if we raise our children to come to Christ, you're raising children that will really offend the world, that are more likely to be yelled at than yawned at, more likely to be excluded than accepted. That's what we're facing. We knowingly teach eternal truths that are very unpopular. And what our kids need in this moment is they need to not be conformed to the pattern of this world that says, don't say this, think this, be tolerant about this, and be transformed by the renewing of their minds. Where's that going to happen? Where's that place of transformation going to be? Let's just agree. If the opponents of Christianity can get us to stop speaking the name of Jesus, Christianity will not spread. It will be quarantined, and a quarantined Christianity is no Christianity at all. It's just a disobedient church. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to have a call here for the church to have a culture of discipleship. A culture of discipleship. And I'm going to start talking about the, the next generation, but if you're single, if, you're, if you don't have kids, don't tune out, don't think I'm going to ignore you, I'm not. You are a big part of this picture. So I want to start with the three concentric circles. Inner circle of the, the home, culture of discipleship at home, then what we're trying to do here in our ministry called family discipleship, and then the bigger picture we need as a church to have a whole church culture of discipleship. That's where I'm heading. First, as you think about a culture of discipleship at home, here's what I'm talking about. Every family has a unique family culture. Do they not? Some people, uh, some families love athletic achievements. Some have more musical performances. Others value academic achievement. Some families are more likely to sit down and play board games than others. Some families are more likely to go outdoors than others. Some are more likely to have experiences traveling than others. Everyone has a different family culture. For some, it's normal to be loud and boisterous. For others, it's normal to be in your rooms and quiet and serene and you don't even hear from each other. But what I'm saying about a family culture is that alongside of whatever unique family culture there is, alongside it and above it, needs to be a culture of discipleship. 
Because your rhythms as a family will create what's normal for your family. How much you eat out, how much you spend long hours working, how much TV you watch, how many places you go, that that all becomes normal. And the question is, is it normal to name the name of Jesus in your household? Is it normal to worship him? Or is it normal to act like we are disinterested and uncommitted to him? What does it look like to be normal in our family? One definition of what I'm talking about, family discipleship, leading your home, that by whatever means possible, you can lead your family members to follow Jesus. As a family, that's what you're putting first. I mean, think about how much time and energy is spent in parenting. How much effort it takes to make sure that your kids are fed and clothed and and educated, sorry. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. We're just going to ignore that. You can understand, right? It, It would not be loving to send your kids into the world unfed, unclothed, and uneducated. But how much worse is it to send them out unprepared for eternity. So, so yeah, it, it is good. It is good to teach your kids to clothe themselves. But alongside of helping them pick out the right clothes and make sure that they're clothed, teach them to put on the full armor of God as well. Teach them to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no allowance for the flesh. Teach them to put on compassionate hearts and humility and kindness and patience, as Paul says in Colossians 3. There's a discipleship to it. Yes, make sure that they're fed, but also make sure that they are coming to the one who is the bread of life, and when they come, they will no longer hunger and thirst for all eternity. Yes, it's good to have a house in which they can be safe and nurtured for 18 years, maybe more. But also, we want them to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of their life alongside and above all the efforts to clothe them to feed them to educate them show them Christ don't let them think that it's normal to be in a Christian home and not hear the name of Jesus as the name above every name as the most important thing in the universe And on top of this, you got the inner circle. Is is Jesus a normal part of your home? Out from that, what are we trying to do as a church to help? What does our family discipleship ministry do? Family discipleship, the job is not to disciple all of your children. The job is to equip you, support you, to disciple your children. 
to do whatever we can to come alongside of you, to equip you, to help you, to support you as you do it. God has given the job to you. And he's not going to give you something and then leave you to yourself. He is going to be with you in it. And we want to come alongside and be with you in it to train, to help. And so, like right now, I want everybody to feel like this is all hands on deck as a church. When we say in our child dedication that we now are are dedicating you to God together with your parents who love you dearly and this people who care about the outcome of your faith, if you don't mean it, let's not say it. We care about the outcome of their faith. We care about the joy of the next generation. So there's a question mark as we have been away from Sunday school classes and things like that for kids when fall ministry kicks up. Where, what's going to happen? And we're, I promise you we're not coming across like desperate wanting you, we need help, pity us. No, we don't want your pity. We want your passion for this to join in and say it's worth it. It's worth it to see our kids raised in such a way that the name of Jesus is spoken and loved and known and the only way that our kids are going to make it is if they've been with Jesus and Jesus is with them. And let's do whatever it takes so we have made it as easy as we possibly can so that nobody can say, I don't know what to do. Here's what you do. Here's a number, 612-223-7432. If you text SERVE, we even put it on the screen. If you text SERVE to that number, if you're interested in serving, in learning more about how to serve in our nurseries or children's Sunday school classes, you're going to get a reply back from people in our family discipleship department. And if your passion is for the joy of the next generation, we're going to plug you in. We're not working with any kind of pity. No gimmicks, no guilt trips. Passion, joy for the next generation. Then we will plug you in. But third concentric circle. All of that is going to fail if we don't have a culture of discipleship as a church. If kids are raised in a home where it's normal to speak the name of Jesus, worship the name of Jesus, if, if it's only our Sunday school workers that are passionate about this, it's a little bit like what we said when it comes to protecting our children. It can't just be the job of children's workers. The safest church is a church in which the whole church cares about the safety of our children. And in the same way, the greatest discipleship church is a church in which the whole church speaks the name of Jesus, loves the name of Jesus, worships the name of Jesus, where it's just normal. It's normal church for people, hands raised, passionate hearts to say, I can't help but sing of him. I can't help but speak of him. I can't help but be a place that loves Jesus as the name above every name. How? Here's what I'm on. How? How will we do this? Well, number one, 
I'm glad that you all put on clothes this morning. That's a good thing. Did you come to church having also put on the full armor of God yourself? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no allowance for the flesh. Put on as God's beloved, chosen ones, compassionate hearts, meekness, gentleness, humility. This generation is the mirror by which the next generation is dressing themselves. What are they seeing? It's not just what we say, it's what we don't say and when we don't say it. It's not just what we do, it's what we don't do and when we don't do it. It's gonna be how that matters more than anything else. How do we speak the name of Jesus? As I thought of this, I thought of the movie Forrest Gump. You're all wondering, why on earth did you think of Forrest Gump? I thought of the character Bubba Blue. Remember the, the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company? Bubba Blue couldn't help but speak of shrimp. Remember this? I found the quote. Anyway, like I was saying, shrimp is the fruit of the sea. You can barbecue it, boil it, broil it, bake it, saute it. There's a shrimp kebab, shrimp creole, shrimp gumbo, pan-fried, deep-fried, stir-fried. There's pineapple shrimp, lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pepper shrimp, shrimp soup, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, shrimp potatoes, shrimp burger, shrimp sandwich. That, that's about it. It's actually not about it. Shrimp and grits, bacon-wrapped shrimp, my second favorite food wrapped in my first favorite food. Like There are so many ways to make shrimp. So many things about shrimp to be excited about. But alongside of that and above that, how much more that we are a people that can't help but speak of the name of Jesus. People want to talk about shrimp. People want to talk about sports. People want to talk about whatever. We can't help it above everything else to talk about the name above every name. We say to our family and friends and to our governor, we, we can't help, we can't put the muzzle on. We know you don't want us to speak of Jesus, but we can't help but speak of the glory of the Son of God who became not only the eternally existing Son of God, but the incarnate Son of God for us and our salvation. We can't help it. We can't help but talk about the Jesus who took on flesh, left the courts of glory and took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died a death on the cross, not for his sin, but for our sin. We can't help but talk about him as the sinless sacrifice, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. We can't help but speak of how on the third day he rose again from the dead, triumphant over all of his enemies, vanquishing Satan and sin and death, devil-defeating, heaven-opening. We can't help but talk of Jesus. We can't help but speak of the name of Jesus, who is the bright and morning star, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come, shepherd of the sheep, lover of our soul, heavenly bridegroom, we can't help but speak of the one who is above everyone else, everything else. We can't help but speak of the day that's coming when he comes galloping out of the sky and he will make 
all things new and he will wipe away every tear from our eye. We can't help but speak of the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and we will all see him. We can't help but speak of Jesus because we've been with Jesus and Jesus is with us and we can't help but speak. That's who the church is. We cannot help but speak of how Jesus promised. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world, and we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony as we can't help but speak of the way that he sent his Holy Spirit, how he continues to build his church and change lives and promise I'll never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we confess in this moment all the times when we haven't been muzzled by great persecution, but we put the muzzle on ourselves because we're afraid, because we wonder what others will think. Oh, God, set us free. Thank you that for all the times that we failed to speak of the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus washes us clean. God, we confess them to you. And we ask it's only by your Holy Spirit. It's only by walking with Jesus who has all authority in heaven and earth and will never leave us that we can speak of him. God, let it be a new day. A new day in which we as a church speak the name of Jesus. It is ordinary and glorious to speak of his name, to sing of his name, to obey him, to follow him in the great commission. And may it be that this mirror that we put up for the next generation would say, we believe it, and we will follow, and we will speak, and we will worship, and we will love until the faith becomes sight. We will overcome. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.